0: Welcome to the New
1: Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Morteza Hajizadeh from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm honored to be speaking to Dr. Alison Stone. Dr. Alison Stone is a professor of philosophy at Lancaster University. Her interests span the history of philosophy, post kantian European philosophy, feminist philosophy, and aesthetics. Today, she's here to talk with us about a wonderful book she published with Uh, Oxford University Press just a couple of months ago called Women's Philosophers in the 19th Century Britain. Uh, Alison, welcome to New Books Network.
0: Hi, hi, thank you for inviting me.
1: Uh, Before uh, we talk about the book, can you tell us a little about yourself, how you became interested in philosophy and especially women philosophers?
0: Well, They're quite different things. So when I first got interested in philosophy, that was back when I was doing the A-levels, which is the 16 to 17-year-old bit of British education. And I got interested in philosophy really because I was doing, one of my A-levels was in classics. So we read Plato and Greek tragedies. It was partly that, and then separately, quite at random, in the library at the college, I picked up Camus' *The Outsider*, which, um, to me, was absolutely amazing. Uh, and uh, you know, I still love it despite all of its problems. Um, and I would say, if if any single thing can be said to have got me into philosophy, it was it was that book, really. So. So as you can see from that, uh, there were not many women philosophers along uh, amongst the things that, that drew me to philosophy. But I also, as an undergraduate student, I got really into feminism. And from there, I became aware of feminist philosophy. And, of course, most feminist philosophers are female. So, So... I liked the fact that it meant I could read lots of women philosophers, and actually one of the first people I got really into was the French feminist philosopher Lucie Rigori. But then uh, gradually I became aware of studies of women, in, particularly in early modern philosophy, which is where most of the work has been done. and. I think for me, a really important article was this article, Disappearing Ink, by Eileen O'Neill, which is from the late 1990s. But she made the point that it's not that philosophy is somehow inherently masculine. There have always been women philosophers, but they were written out of the narratives. And... um. Until then, there'd been an awful lot of discussion about is philosophy somehow inherently masculine in what way? And so for me, it was sort of a total paradigm shift sort of thing. Oh, actually, there always have been women philosophers. It's just that they've been forgotten and we need to rediscover them.
1: (laughs) You, You actually raised a couple of points which I'll... I will bring up again throughout the interview. Uh, I'm kind of interested to know how this book came about and why you decided to particularly focus on 19th century Britain.
0: Mm. Yeah. Well, one of the other things I'd been interested in for a long time was 19th century philosophy, and I actually started off as a Hegel scholar. So I'd been interested in the 19th century for a long time without ever actually asking the question, what about the women? And it was partly a a friend of mine, Christine Giesdahl, asking me about this. That was one of the things that pushed me to begin to think about who the women philosophers of this time were. Because it seems oddly to have often been assumed that there were lots of women in the early modern period, and then that we get to 1800 and suddenly... They all stopped doing philosophy, and it must be because it was the rise of patriarchy and women were driven into the home. I think that's been quite a pervasive assumption. Um, and But I don't think it's true. I think it's just that people have assumed it because we haven't yet investigated women of the 19th century. And because they've not been investigated Nobody knows about them So they don't know That there's anyone to know about And it it all kind of Just reinforces itself Anyway So uh, I started I started out um, Just thinking I'd write about the 19th century As a whole But I I soon realised That was just going to be unmanageable So So then I decided to narrow it down to Britain And I started off looking at studies of 19th century feminism in Britain As providing a way in And then that quite quickly led me to discover One of the women I've got really interested in Frances Power Cobb Because she was an important feminist and I soon realised that she'd actually written loads of things about all sorts of areas of philosophy, pretty much every area of philosophy, not just, so she hadn't just written about feminism. But then because of that, I came to discover where she'd been publishing, which was in Victorian periodicals. And then once I became aware that there was this thing, Victorian periodicals, that was when, you know, I began to discover lots of women who'd been publishing in this particular context, such as some of the people I talked about in in the book, like Julia Wedgwood and Constance Naden, and Arabella Buckley. So, uh, so it was really sort of once I'd found out that that was the the publishing culture, then. And sort of found out about the nature of how it worked and some of its peculiarities. That was then what enabled me to to sort of find lots of the women philosophers. Uh,
1: The the I really really love the structure of the book. So you come up, you have the introduction, the first chapter which provides some background to print culture, which we'll talk about. And what I particularly like about this book is that it's kind of organized by themes. So chapter two is about naturalism, chapter three about philosophy of mind for meaning of evolution and religion and morality and finally progress in history. And it's quite interesting, such a diverse range of topics for which maybe the male philosophers are famous. But then you come to understand that there has been a lot of serious discussions and thoughts also by women, which unfortunately had kind of been neglected. And like I told you, before this, before we started recording, we've been reading a couple of books on women philosophers, and it's just amazing, the depth of thought. And it's just so also so sad that, unfortunately, they haven't really uh, received the attention that they should have. But it's great that there has been this new trend to this new academic, let's say, focus on women's philosophers. So uh, let's...
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, just to comment on that. I mean, sure. at the very, at this very moment, on the course that I'm teaching at Lancaster, which is on 19th century philosophy We do Hegel Feuerbach, Marx Francis Power Cobb, Annie Besson to Nietzsche And it's Tying in with what you say It's The students find it Really amazing how they're, you know, Her Hegel, it's Marx. There's tons and tons of literature about everything they've said. And they turn to Francis Power Cobb and Annie Besant and it's just this total silence, <laughs> even though both Cobb and Besant had published loads. And um, so, yeah. Um, anyway.
1: Um, let's talk about... The first chapter. That's where you talk about the 19th century print culture, periodicals, letters, and how they actually enabled women to write philosophy for the general public. And I think it's one of the main uh, features of women philosophy is that they use mainstream media. Let's say they wrote for the general public, uh, which to me, at least, it's it's a way more accessible way of reading philosophy. So, can you talk about the influence of the 19th century print culture? Um, women's writing philosophy
0: yes absolutely so like i say as well it was really discovering about the print culture that enabled me to understand where the women were publishing and what kind of philosophy they were doing so really um People used to have absolutely no idea about the scale of British print culture, and it was kind of almost entirely lost sight of the 19th century print culture in the 20th century, and then it was just rediscovered towards the end of the century. And at first, people really underestimated the scale of it. Um, So it's now estimated that there was at least... A hundred and ten thousand journals come newspapers come magazines, which all shaded into one another. It was all made possible obviously by the industrial revolution and so the thing about these these journals is that they they weren't like specialist academic journals, but they were still scholarly. So in the case of some of them like the Westminster Review and Contemporary Review, Macmillan's Magazine, it would be articles that were 10,000 plus words. It was often reviewing books that had come out because there was also a massive increase in the amount of books that were being published over the course of the century. So it would often be that articles were kind of reviews, but they were kind of essays as well a bit of a hybrid form and so one of the things that's that's really important to know about it is just the extent to which women were part of it so back in 1990 it was estimated that 13 percent of authors in the journals were female um and it's it's probably more i mean that's that's nearly 25 years ago now so at least 13% and one of the things that made this possible was that up until the 1860s it was normal for um for non-fiction articles in journals to be anonymous and once once then it began to be more normal for them to be signed it was still really common for loads of people to use pseudonyms or or initials so that so there was no reason to exclude someone because they were a woman since nobody was going to know that the article was by a woman anyway
1: and <clears throat> towards the end of this first chapter you talk about the importance of, let's say, uh, uh, you're, you're, sorry, um, some strategies. Uh, oh, sorry, let me correct myself. That's a question I should have asked kind of uh, later. Some strategies, let's say, you employ to get around these patriarchal assumptions about the 19th century print culture. And you have some examples. You talk about Martino, George Eliot, Francis Power Cobb. So can you uh, talk about them, please?
0: Mm, absolutely. Well, anonymity itself was, and pseudonymity was a, a strategy. In fact, quite a lot of George Eliot's journal articles were were anonymous, and obviously, then George Eliot is itself a pseudonym for for Marian Evans. So, so that was one thing. And with with Harriet Martineau as well, she often. Um, Well, she often published things under her name, but she also quite often used pseudonyms, and she had some anonymous things. So so, sometimes she used the pseudonym V for lots of her earlier philosophical articles. And there's other things I found by her with the the pseudonym from the mountain. So there was all sorts. So that was one strategy. Another thing was to claim to be popularizing, because if you portrayed yourself as merely popularizing something that a man had thought, then you couldn't really be criticized in the same way for for sort of getting ideas above your station. So Martineau, she wrote, she expected she was going to die of illness, which turned out to be false. But she wrote an obituary for herself in advance where she said she could popularise while she could neither discover nor invent. So you get lots of these sorts of disclaimers. And just another thing I'm going to mention, and this is a very different strategy, but there was quite a widespread belief that although women were intellectually inferior to men that they were morally superior to men and so women would make use of this to if they if they did philosophy in almost quite a moralistic way it meant that they could claim to have this this feminine authority about morality from which they were speaking, so it does mean that some of women's philosophizing from this time can now strike us as being quite moralistic, but it is because that was it was something that they could use to to say that they needed to be speaking out about philosophy because of their moral expertise, as it were.
1: Um, why, why were let's say, women philosophers' contribution forgotten and erased from history. What were some of the reasons behind that? You, uh, you, you mentioned two important reasons. One of them is uh, prof- uh, you, and you, you also professionalization and spe- specialization of British philosophy from mid-1870s. Uh, and then you also talk about two very important cases, case studies, let's say, uh, about COP and also something called Coulomb Affair. And Heightson reports. So it would be great if you could talk about them, please.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that professionalisation was really important in in why these women got forgotten. So this periodical culture that that we've been talking about, it it wasn't specialist. So these journals such as Westminster Review and Contemporary Review, there would be contributions from lots of what we now see as different disciplines all together it it was non specialist and then from about the 1870s onwards specialization began to come in and the idea that you must be uh, you must have expertise in some kind of local area in order to be able to say anything serious and and make any kind of serious headway on a topic. And so you began at this period to get specialist journals, like the first specialist philosophy journal, p- the Proceedings of the Aristotelian Society. You also had the Aristotelian Society itself. But in all the disciplines, these specialist institutions began to form and, and basically the bowl started rolling towards a situation where in order to be able to speak credibly on topic you needed to be an academic but because for for most of the preceding period women hadn't been able to go to university i mean they they could go to university to a limited extent by the end of the century, but still it meant there were very few women who could become professional academics. So so nearly all of the professional academics were men, and at the same time they saw the philosophy that had been occurring in the in these journals basically as, as amateur. Um, so it was so I think it was those two things. The fact that they were they were the academics were nearly all men and it was that they were defining themselves against this earlier culture that they saw as amateur. So then I, I also, with these two case studies, so one of them concerns Frances Power Cobb because in the 19th century, in 19th century Britain, her, her standing was quite high. But the thing that I think really helped to ensure that she was left out of the history of philosophy was the fact that she was also the leader of the movement against animal experimentation or vivisection, as it was then called. And so... There was Cobb on one side, but there was the mainstream of science, which more and more was using animal experimentation on the other. And she began to be attacked for being hysterical and sentimental. Um, And so she came to be seen as sort of the wrong sort, you know, as this over-emotional woman woman. Who was who was sort of holding back progress, and it wasn't the sort of figure with which someone who wanted to to make themselves out as a credible expert you wouldn't want to to associate yourself with her. And something related in in a di- very different way happened to Elena Blavatsky, who was the founder of Theosophy, the first alternative religion, and at the time loads of philosophers and people from all kinds of fields that they discussed Blavatsky's ideas. I mean she was always controversial, but people were really interested in her ideas. But um but basically the problem in her case was that uh, there was a there was one controversy about about her that was called the Coulomb Affair. We're, and then there was also this Hodgson report which was put together by the society for psychical research which was quite recently formed at the time and they they basically concluded that lots of things blavatsky had been doing were were fraudulent and so although this related to to Sort of other parts of her work Rather than her writings It obviously kind of undermined Her authority in terms of Her philosophical writings As well And what I found really interesting is that in both cases with Cobb and Blavatsky, they were both accused of being frauds, the same language in in both cases. They were accused of being frauds and imposters who didn't really know about the things that they claimed to talk about. So um, it's sort of the beginnings of why women in philosophy might suffer from imposter syndrome, I guess
1: uh towards the end of this chapter you uh you 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 kind of ask for restoring 19th century british philosophers into premium philosophers into the narratives of history of philosophy and you have some recommendations so how how can that be achieved
0: right well so i suggested that when we look back and try to find the women mm. philosophers from this that we shouldn't be expecting them to look like professional philosophers as we have come to know it I mean some of them can some of them can look relatively like that so Mary Shepherd who was earlier on in the 19th century in a way she can look relatively like that but we shouldn't require that that everyone be doing that and I suggested that we should be open to various different forms of writing that, that women used in order to philosophise. Uh, so letters, but also um, in some cases writing fiction. I mean, both Harriet Martineau and and George Eliot made philosophical use of writing fiction or women may have done editing and translating. So Ada Lovelace, her thoughts about artificial intelligence are contained within her notes, which are contained within her translation of an article about um, Babbage's sort of prototypical computers so she kind of you know embedded her own thoughts within what purported to be just a translation of of someone else's work and i suppose as an overarching thing i would say that to discover these women philosophers we need to familiarize ourselves with this particular print culture in the journals of the time and understand these particular conventions around anonymity and and pseudonymity. I mean, in a sense, those may seem like part of the, they may seem just part of cultural background rather than shaping the kind of philosophy that was done. I mean but they do shape it to a certain extent but it's just also that unless we understand this culture a bit we won't know how to find the writings by, by women um, we will be reliant upon what has already been plucked out of this culture and and sort of packaged into kind of self-contained books and um, and of course, women have almost entirely been left out of that.
1: Um, now, let's talk about some 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 of the main philosophical themes. Um, your second chapter is about naturalism. So, I'm kind of curious to know what you, what was the main debate about naturalism and anti naturalism. I know it's a very difficult and broad question, but if, if you can, you know, broadly discuss this and then say what are, and it's a chance to name some of these female philosophers that you have uh, included in the book, what was the main contribution to this debate in the 19th century?
0: Yeah, so by by naturalism, uh, for, uh, to simplify, I, I understand it to be the view that Natural science can tell us about everything, and that natural science relies on an empirical method, and so therefore I was taking anti-naturalism to be the idea that there are other sources of knowledge besides empirical natural science. Now in terms of what women philosophers contributed to this, so... There was a book that came out in in eighteen fifty one so absolutely at the middle of the century and this book was it was just at the center of this huge storm of controversy so this is letters on the laws of man's nature and development, which was partly by Harriet martineau well she she published it but it drew on letters that she had exchanged with henry george atkinson so it it it's uh, yeah. It's I guess it counts as jointly authored, and basically they they took uh, a naturalist view. Everything can be understood using empirical science, empirical natural science, and so consequently, they said that all there is to the mind is the brain. And there's no supernatural forces or powers, including that there's no free will. All of our actions are are determined. And um, there's no reason to believe that there's a God or or that he's created the world or that human beings are at the centre of creation in any way. So... All of this was I mean it was it was just immensely controversial it was really this this huge storm but there were also other women who argued against naturalism so Francis Power Cobb argued that you couldn't make sense of m- moral requirements on this basis that moral moral requirements presuppose a moral law which presupposes a divine legislator to have laid down the moral law so that we have to have religion to have morality for her but and in a very different way uh, at the very end of the century Victoria Welby she argued that we can't make sense of meaning within naturalist terms because we only investigate empirical facts in the first place because we have some sense of what their wider significance is. So rather than empirical facts being what gives gives rise to meaning, she thought you've got to have meaning and significance first in order to even be, be examining any facts.
1: Um, one of my favorite chapters of the book was evolution um, and discussions about whether Darwin was, was, was compatible with religion, whether Darwin wasn't compatible with religion. And uh, you talk about Julia Wedgwood's engagement with her ideas and how, with, with Darwin's ideas and how her ideas about evolution sort of evolved. Um, can you talk about that one, please? And, and tell us who, who was uh, Julia Wedgwood in general first. Because that's a name yeah. I hadn't, to be honest, I hadn't heard that name before reading your book.
0: No. And actually, just last year as well, a great biography of her came out by oh, Sue Brown. So Julia Wedgwood is probably the most forgotten of all the people that I've talked about in this book. Amongst other things, she was Darwin's niece. But um, she also... I mean, she she was just another of these people who, who published a huge amount of things in the journals. Some of it was anonymous. Some of it was signed. And she, she wrote across loads of areas of philosophy. But in terms of evolution, so she brought out... She started off with a dialogue that she brought out in 1860 where she argued that... Darwinism and religion were compatible along the lines that God has set the evolutionary process going and she also thought that he'd planned out the basic forms of the different species including the human species and that he'd intended for us to have the ability to to be moral agents and So he'd planned this out, but then the course of evolution is how the plan becomes realized or or implemented and how we acquire the sorts of bodies that enable us to have the powers that God had always planned for us. Now, it might sound like she was... Avoiding the challenge of Darwinism, because I guess we've come quite often to think of it as this, this sort of radical challenge to, to religion and all, all kinds of religiously based ideas. But from her perspective, she was defending Darwinism by saying Christians don't need to reject it. They don't need to be afraid of it. But anyway, that was how she started off. But basically, her views underwent quite a lot of change over time. And so by the end of the century, she was taking a more, I suppose we could call it a more conservative view, that she said Darwinism had had undermined morality because it had shown that everything changes and and evolves, everything is in flux, so there can't be any kind of fixed moral standards. And then her response to that was to say that you can't question everything. If you question everything you won't have any kind of ground left to stand on from which to to kind of Direct your questions, as it were, she thought you know you or well, certainly that you can't question everything all at once. there has to be something unquestioned, and for her, that had to include religious faith and moral convictions so so she did she changed towards a more um a more conservative view.
1: And another philosopher you discuss in this chapter is Arabella Buckley's who argument who argued that Darwin's position in the in, in his book Descent of Man is compatible with both religion and morality. So that's yeah. that sounds like a very fascinating argument. Can you talk about that one? What was your main argument about Darwin's position?
0: Yeah. So so in I suppose I should start off by saying what's in what what Darwin's view was So Darwin had, He had argued that Because we are group animals That over a long period of time Selection has favoured Those who are more social and cooperative And those traits have been passed on So he thought That you didn't need to invoke religion To have a cooperative morality That you could get it on an evolutionary basis and it, But he also was opposing those who thought That evolution entailed aggression and competition He was saying it, it had a more, um, a more optimistic outcome And Buckley's response to this was to follow this idea of cooperative morality but she thought you still really needed to bring in christianity to get it so she again said that god has has set evolution in motion and he's established the laws that regulate the evolutionary process and she also thought that he had planted the seeds of Social cooperativeness within us, which evolution then has has developed further. But I think what's what's interesting is that the reason why she wanted to bring God back in was that she thought plausibly evolution on its own would suggest that really it's all about the survival of the fittest and or the survival of the strongest and might makes right and so on. And so she thought in order to get the cooperativeness that Darwin wanted, it had to be backed up with a religious element as well.
1: Uh, You also talk about Kabul in this chapter, who viewed evolution to be an account of nature and not ethics and which is again a fascinating uh, argument that we need to kind of separate evolution from 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 discussions of ethics so what was that uh, what was her argument in that regard
0: yeah. well so she took in a way a, a quite different view from from wedgwood and buckley because she thought that evolutionary pressures did or had selected for aggression and competition and the survival of the fittest in Herbert Spencer's phrase. So um so she didn't think that you could get this kind of cooperative ethics out of evolution at all. She thought the real implications of evolution were were really quite nasty. And Darwin had mentioned this imaginary example of the cultivated hive bee that thinks it's its sacred duty to kill off the unproductive members of the hive during winter. And Cobb thought that this showed what evolutionary morality really boiled down to, uh, basically kill off the weak members of the social group if you need to and justify yourself saying that that this was your sacred duty so um she, she did accept that we are evolved as natural creatures but she thought that you had to get morality from a different place that you couldn't get it from evolution it had to come from god so she saw us as these as as kind of two sided beings that on the one hand we're physical and we're evolved but on the other hand we're also spiritual and in relation to God's moral commandments but that was I mean not many people I suppose would agree with that now but I think that again the reasons why she wanted to say that are quite interesting because she thought that was the only way that you could avoid a position where um, Where sort of might makes right—that the only way you could have obligations to those who are weak or or infirm or struggling—was um, not on an evolutionary basis; it had to come from religion.
1: Uh, one of the philosophers, including this book, that I was uh, really amazed by was George Eliot. So I, I studied English literature myself, so I tend to think of her. As a novelist, and it was only last year that I realized that she was very much engaged with philosophical ideas. She translated, I think, Feuerbach's book from from German into English, and uh, a, a translation that was kind of forgotten. But it was great to know that I think it was last year, a couple of years ago, it was published by a University Publisher again. That translation, don't the remember trans- which university. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, can you talk about her significance in the history of women's philosophy? Or, The main ideas Mm. they should engage with. What was her contribution to philosophy?
0: I mean, her contribution was was really quite big. Um, So there's so many things that you could pick out. So in the 1850s, she anonymously was the co-editor of this journal, the Westminster Review, and this was one of the the big journals, the most prestigious ones. So in a way, through that role, she had a huge influence. There were the translations, like you've mentioned, and those translations, the translation of Feuerbach and of Strauss, they were really important for bringing German religious criticism into, into Britain. So, so both of those things were quite huge. And then there's also the fact that her novels themselves have a, a philosophical basis because she thought that the central thing that the novel can do is expand what we now call our empathy for others um, or our imaginative sympathy with others. And she thought that then leads into sort of emotional sympathy of feeling the things that others feel. And then that would translate practically into us treating others around us better. So she saw literature as having this this big moral role that it could motivate us to to treat other people better and that was connected with her Her translations of religious criticism as well, because Eliot became a secularist, so she thought religion couldn't continue to play this moral role that it had used to do, and something else was needed to play that role instead, and that something was literature for her. So those those are just a few things, yeah. I mean, there would be another set of things you could pick out as well because she was in this long partnership with George Henry Lewis who wrote a number of philosophical books. He wrote this biographical history of philosophy that was a bestseller for most of the century. And so... And so he himself was pretty influential as a philosopher, but, you know, their ideas came out of a dialogue with one another. So so she had quite a big influence, even if, you know, some of it has been a bit hidden from view until now.
1: Um, well, to me, the idea of this podcast is to introduce our listeners to a wide range of topics that women philosophers have talked about and also different uh, their works, their names. So um, unfortunately we can't really delve deep into their discussions and um, I, that's why I do encourage our listeners to read the book. It's a very accessible book as a matter of fact, a very accessible book and it just gives you an amazing idea of how deep their, their thinking was. And so I just said that because in the next couple of questions that I'm going to ask will be broad and as I said the intention is simply to introduce the audience to the uh, range of topics that women philosophers engaged with so you you have a chapter on the question of religion atheism secularism can you just briefly tell us who were the main philosophers in this who who engaged with these ideas and what was their contribution to the questions of atheism or religion
0: yeah well i mean this was it it was just a huge it was a huge topic so There were quite a few women who were secularist or agnostic or atheist. These all blended together somewhat at the time. So Harriet Martineau, um, I mentioned earlier her letters on the laws of man's nature and development. Martineau had actually started off a devout member of this particular Christian sect, Unitarianism, but she she gradually abandoned her faith and became, um, it's open to debate what to call her, whether a secularist or an atheist or, or an agnostic. But certainly she'd abandoned religion. And some of the others in that chapter that I talked about were George Eliot came in here as a secularist. And also Annie Besant, who was one of the leaders for a while of the National Secular Society, and I. I also brought in Vernon Lee, who was again a secularist. And then, on the other hand, for the defender of religion in the chapter, I focused on Cobb. So, as I've mentioned, she thought that you can't have morality without religion, and that. The highest level of morality specifically needs the Christian religion, particularly because of the need for there to be a divine legislator, to, to establish a moral law, but also because she thought that suffering will seem overwhelmingly terrible to us unless we can believe in an afterlife where things are going to be better. Um. And interestingly there were some real debates amongst the amongst these women about these issues. So um Cobb had heard Bessant talk in defense of a secular morality and she was horrified. And then later Besson wrote a critique of one of Cobb's articles defending Christianity. And Vernon Lee also did a critique of Cobb in the form of a, a dialogue, and Cobb replied to it. So um so so they, they really debated one another on this on this issue. And um I mean I think there's so many interesting things that come out of that. Um, such as I mean, one of the points that Cobb makes is that she thinks people believe they can just sort of easily stride into secularism and and nothing will be lost. And she thinks that Christian ideas remain much more influential upon us and upon secularists and atheists than than they realise. And she also thinks, however, that if over centuries people genuinely were to escape from the Christian inheritance, then she thought they would be left kind of with no moral compass at all and and with a completely meaningless existence, um, which was quite bleak. But so there's there's loads of issues entangled in it that are still quite relevant, I think.
1: Um, and uh, the final chapter, uh, that was actually one of my favorite ones as well, you talk about the engagement with the idea of progress in history and uh, some of the ideas could these days be considered to be eurocentric or some of them might have justified colonialism in the name of progress so can you talk about that aspect of uh, history of women's philosophy
0: yeah absolutely so uh, I looked in this chapter at Harriet Martineau and Cobb and Wedgwood and Blavatsky and they've all got these these grand narratives about progress. And Martineau and Cobb and Wedgwood, they all t- think in terms of a progression of different world religions um, leading up to Europe, um, starting either in ancient India or... Um, or in Egypt for Martino, and then leading up to modern Europe. Um, whereas, um, I mean, Blavatsky has got quite a, a different view. So she's still got a sequence of worldviews that for her begin in it begins in ancient India, and then it goes through to modern Europe. But the difference is that she doesn't see modern Europe as being unequivocally the most advanced. So she thinks it's intellectually the most advanced, but it is spiritually bankrupt and cut off from ancient spiritual wisdom. And she thought that to regain that wisdom, Europeans needed to learn from the traditions of ancient India. So, I mean, you can see how she's she's kind of one of the originators of of the New Age, really, and... Um, of sort of alternative spirituality, um, and because she's got that more ambiguous view, um, she uh, her views didn't they didn't necessarily justify or rationalise colonialism. Whereas th- this is something of a feature for the other three. Wedgwood was fairly explicit about supporting the british empire and and so was Cobb Martineau did, but it was it was with more limitations that she she certainly thought if if it was about economic exploitation that that was unacceptable, so that it was only justifiable. on on moral grounds, and then that once colonised peoples had had reached majority, that they should become independent. Uh, But still, you know, that still meant that she she was basically supportive of the empire. Whereas in the case of Blavatsky, because she saw Eastern religious traditions as being more advanced, that was something that Indian nationalists Began to use So they drew on theosophy um, Amongst many other things But they drew on it To support the case For Indian national independence On the grounds that Well if 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 Indian religions Religious traditions Are more advanced Spiritually Than European ones Then um, in in dominating India and colonizing it, the British are kind of dragging it down to a lower spiritual level than it would be at if India was independent. Um, so, I mean, uh, but I should say people have still criticized Blavatsky and and quite understandably for, um, for having, having a version of Orientalism and she has she has her own sort of particular version of the race discourse that had become such a feature of of British culture by that time, so although her ideas were more ambiguous than those of the other women, they can still certainly be criticized
1: um before ending this conversation. Is there any other project that you're currently working on, any other monograph or book that is about to come out soon?
0: Uh, I don't think anything will come out very soon, but what I'm working on is a study of women's thought on aesthetics in this period, 19th century Britain, because this was one of the many areas of philosophy that I had to leave out and you've mentioned that you know that I do cover quite a range of areas of philosophy in this book Um, and in fact it may be worth me saying here that I deliberately chose not to have any social and political philosophy in it because I thought that people will often think that that's the main thing that women of this time would have written about, partly because um, they were oppressed as women, so they would have had plenty of social and political problems to write about. So, But because I wanted to show that they actually talked about lots of things, I, I left that out. But one of the other things that I left out was aesthetics. So I've been... Yeah, so so I'm working away on what women thought about aesthetics at this time.
1: Cool, so hopefully soon we'll see your new book about uh, that and hopefully we'll be able to talk to you about that book. (laughs) Professor Alison Stone, thank you very much for uh, talking to us about Women Philosophers of the 19th Century England.
0: Thank you.